the conversation will be live. I'll just keep the conversation going. Okay. Um, Come on, yeah. you know, really? <laughs> right, right. Uh, all right, it should be live. Okay. Yeah, like like I feel like like anyone who's involved in technology, we're live, by the way. Uh, anyone who's involved in technology, like, sees how the future plays out. And for me, I just sort of see these sort of exponential growth paths in ways that lead into all of these kinds of areas. And so it's like each time you're like, you've got to really consider like, what is the, what is a, an exponential curve look like when it fully plays out and consider the consequences of that in, in almost every one of these technologies that you play with. Anyway, let's get started. So, hey everyone, uh, at this very special time, and uh, I apologize in advance. I know for a lot of you this is surprising, but my hope is that this will uh, show up in your feed, and if you're not catching this live, you're going to enjoy it afterwards. You'll be like, wow, I am so glad that Fraser uh, scheduled this conversation. So, uh, joining me today, I've got uh, Phil Torres, who is, well, why don't you introduce yourself, Phil? Yeah, and also I want to say it's my apologies for the weird time because it was ultimately <laughs> due to the logistics, uh, scheduling the logistics um, yep. uh, uh, that were from my side. Yeah, I gave, um, so, I gave Phil whichever Monday at 5 p.m. he wanted to come on the show. He said, I can't do any of them ever. He called my bluff, and so now we've got a, uh, we've got a show at a random time. But, you know, like, don't everybody get yeah. used to this. This isn't, this isn't so normal. But So who are you? Yeah. So, yeah, um, Phil Torres. Um, uh, I study mostly existential risk and global catastrophic risk. Uh, so I've published a few books on the topic and a bunch of papers. And I'm currently working on another book uh, that will, will probably end up being quite large, and it's tentatively called A Brief History of Human Extinction. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the, what, what brought you to my eye was... Uh, you had just posted an article to, I believe it was the conversation, the gist of which Nautilus. Oh, it was Nautilus. Yeah, that's right. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's to Nautilus, which is a great uh, online magazine. And the gist of your of your argument was, uh, don't expect the exploration of space and the colonization of space to save us from the existential risks that we are working on right now. And uh, and I I really enjoyed your point of view and i think that um or oh, people saying phil's volume should be louder tell me uh tell me where i'll i'll crank his his volume a little bit yeah and i love and i love that idea because you know my channel is very much about what are all the things we're learning in space exploration and what are all the things that we're learning in, in astronomy and a lot of people are really enthusiastic about the idea of of us Mm -hmm. you know, heading off into space. And I think there's a lot of really valid reasons why. So, so, and I want to sort of have this conversation about space exploration a little later in this, mm -hmm. in this show. I'd like sure. to sort of start in the world of, of ex existential risks. Uh, yeah. So, so can you sort of just define for people, what is this idea of an existential risk? Yeah, sure. Um, and definitely, um, uh, you know, listeners, let us know if the volume's not uh, loud enough. Yeah, please. you can't you can't fix it. It's all up to me. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so there are a number of definitions of, of an existential risk. Uh, the term was formalized in 2002 by uh, Nick Bostrom, who's at Oxford University, uh, who's the founder of the Future of Humanity Institute. 
and his particular definition is disjunctive. It says uh, it, it defines an existential risk as uh, either human extinction or some future event that results in a permanent and drastic uh, reduction in our capacity for desirable uh, future development. Uh, whatever, however you interpret that. Nick Bostrom himself is, has kind of a, a, a total utilitarian and transhumanistic uh, uh, view, which we could discuss more later. Um, but the term uh, also, there's kind of a looser sense that you might find in uh, popular media articles or even sometimes scholarly articles where it's just you know human extinction or civilizational collapse, something of that sort. Um, and also I would say that the the <clears throat> conflation of uh, the existential with the extinctional, you know, existential risk with uh, risk to for hu of human survival is also pretty common, actually, in both the scholarly literature and uh, um, you know, and popular media articles about the topic, which makes sense because you know, human extinction is a concept we're uh, much more familiar with, at least these days. Um, it, as I will discuss in in my book, I mean, it was, it's actually really quite a novel concept. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that basically nobody thought about, nobody took the concepts of human and extinction and sort of mm -hmm. smashed them together right. uh, to create this composite concept. So it's a really quite, uh, yeah, it's quite novel, uh, novel addition to our, our shared library of concepts. Um, so, yeah, so there are multiple definitions, but I think probably the most uh, prominent and most canonical is, uh, is Nick Bostrom's. Yeah. And, and I think that like, it's really only been like up until the last couple of, of maybe 50 years, I guess, you know, human beings have been able to wipe each other out in small areas in wars and in, mm -hmm. and there have been natural events such as plagues and famines and things that have, have caused a, a dent. And you can imagine pandemics and things like that, or a, a volcano that, you know, but each one of these, humanity can theoretically bounce back like it would suck but you yeah. could imagine after the air cleared after we get become immune after you know we stop shooting each other that we can recover from this event but yeah. but there are new events that we are moving into which there is potentially no coming back yeah yeah and, I, and those are the existential ones yeah that's exactly right um this it, it really is um it's this sort of a qualitatively new era. I mean, what came to mind while you were talking is, uh, um, you know, another thing I've been thinking a lot about is uh, some people have referred to like climate change, uh, uh, nuclear proliferation, uh, or more specifically activities that uh, conduce to nuclear proliferation or fail to properly address climate change as crimes against humanity. Um, but you know, the, if you actually look at the history of crimes against the notion, the legal notion of crimes against humanity, uh, and the development of international law throughout the 20th century, um, I mean, it was it was defined um, wasn't defined in terms of the size of the event, but uh, that was was in the background. I mean, it, it emerged in response to genocide. Um, these days, though, there is the possibility of not mere genocide. Uh, but omnicide, right. you know, the destruction of all of all humanity. So, the um, the the concept of, of crimes against humanity seems inadequate to properly 
uh, describe the enormity right. of what an existential catastrophe would actually entail. But it's even worse than that, right? Because you're describing, say, wiping out all humanity forever. But there are some of these existential risks that are even worse than that, that would theoretically wipe out all life on Earth, wink out the Earth from existence, uh, wink out big chunks of the universe from existence, and right now where we stand and this sort of is where it's going to later on lead to a conversation about uh, about space exploration we yeah. have no concrete knowledge that there is life anywhere else in the entire universe the only yeah. evidence that we have is that life is here and so we are the stewards of life in potentially the entire universe and there are now triggers at our disposal Mm -hmm. You know, things that we can do that could theoretically, as you say, I mean, a, an om, omnixtinction, what do you call that? Omnicide. Omnicide, yeah, right. Yeah. But, an, you know, omnicide uh, is sort of like a murder thing, but, I, you know, like an omnixtinction. Anyway, yeah. we'll figure out a portmanteau later on. I like omnicide, but the fact that you could wipe out all life from the universe yeah. if we take a misstep. Yeah, so a bunch of things occurred to me. Um, I mean, if you take a, uh, a kind of synchronic perspective, like, you know, just uh, a time slice, you can differentiate between um, uh, ca catastrophes with different kinds of, of, uh, of the scope of the consequences might be uh, different. So, for example, you could kill, you know, all humans, but the biosphere remains yeah. intact. There are obviously other, uh, I mean, initially when, um, just prior to detonating the first uh, atomic bomb, which is named Trinity, uh, in New Mexico, there was worries uh, uh, presented by some of the physicists work, working in the Manhattan Project, Teller, um, and uh, and some others. And Oppenheimer had Robert Oppenheimer had them uh, double check to make sure that it's not the case that the nuclear chain reaction would uh, propagate through the atmosphere, thereby presumably killing the you know the entire biosphere, right. uh, or at the very least, you know, the terrestrial and, and aerial um, uh, 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 components of the biosphere. Um, so that's one issue. If you take a diachronic perspective, then, um, you know, there's a famous thought experiment uh, initially proposed by the incredible uh, Oxonian philosopher Derek Parfit, who uh, asked people, this is, he's writing in the context of a nuclear conflict. This is in his uh, person, uh, Reasons and Persons, which was 1984. Um, and uh, he says, you know, what's, what is the bigger difference? Is it between peace and 99% of humanity dying out? Uh, or is it the difference between 99% of humanity dying out and 100%? And most people, of course, would say, well, it's the, the former is the bigger difference. Um, and from his point of view, it's actually the latter. Because there could come to exist many more right. future generations. So, I mean, what you're doing is forever foreclosing the precluding the possibility that that you know trillions and trillions of human beings uh come into existence carl sagan in um in his famous uh 1983 foreign affairs paper that introduced the notion of nuclear winter actually to the public uh he calculated um as i'm remembering i think it was five trillion biological humans in the next 10 million years and then others since then like milan circovic and nick bostrom have proposed numbers that are astronomically yeah large. i think there are there are potentially just in the solar system alone you could have a trillion people living with plenty of space in their 
O'Neill cylinders in this yeah. part of their Dyson swarm, uh, yeah, no totally. problem. And and that's just in this one solar system. Not to mention how many yeah. people could be living in in other in other solar systems. So if, if I remember correctly, it was it, one of Bostrom's um, calculations was um, uh, per century in the Virgo supercluster alone, you could have 10 to the 23 biological humans. Right. And so he's not even considering the possibility, which is a bit- um, Yeah, not all the simulated ones. All the, not all the simulated yeah. <laughs> you know, you turn planets into computronium and then you, you simulate, yeah. you know, billions and billions and billions. Yeah, now he's but anyways, just- Anyways, yeah, it's, it's a huge future loss from that, from a, right. you know, that more dichronic perspective. So let's talk about some of these potential existential risks and, yeah. and, and sort of move from, sort of the less scary ones to some of the scarier ones and uh, yeah. so where do you put some, what are some of the 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 harmless existential risks um <laughs> well it's it's a slight oxymoron yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, i mean in terms of harm you perhaps one way to classify it is how much suffering it creates mm -hmm. you know so so if it's the case for example that the universe is in a metastable a false vacuum state um, and, you know, we're doing these, I, I heard um, just recently that there's uh, plans for a, uh, high, uh, energy particle accelerator that's like 10 times. 10 times the, the power. Yeah. I forget the name of yeah, it, yeah. but yeah, they're going to, they're going to scale up the large Hadron Collider to a power. Yeah. A factor yeah, yeah. Of 10. So, so maybe, you know, we're conducting our experiments and, and uh, we nucleate the, uh, a vacuum bubble, you know, that would destroy everybody at the, at the instantaneously at the speed of light. Um, so in a sense, it's, you know, the harm that's done, of course, is is closing off the, uh, preventing human civilization from uh, further developing, but uh, we wouldn't feel any pain, unlike... Well, and um, also, but like I said, also destroying the universe at the speed of light. Right. So that, that also, Oops. you had mentioned earlier, yeah, the possibility, maybe we're alone in, in right. the universe. Um, and I am, I'm sort of inclined to accept that that's true, but I'm uncomfortable with it because um, it does seem i don't know ernst mayer famously said you know intelligence is uh maybe a lethal mutation um so you know maybe it's the case that uh peter ward and i'm forgetting his co-author um who have been brownly brownly exactly yeah. yeah yeah thank you um have been uh advocating the rare earth hypothesis that yep. you know simple life is maybe prevalent but uh, complex life is pretty rare so I don't know, that seems kind of true, but if there is other intelligent life out there, then yeah, I mean, if we create a vacuum bubble, it would, <laughs> you know, destroy everything in the future light cone. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, there's the, the taxonomy that I found most helpful, maybe not for theoretical reasons, but for pedagogical reasons, is basically distinguishing between natural and anthropogenic hazards. So natural ones, um, you know, maybe super probable would be like gamma ray bursts, uh, um, galactic center outbursts. Uh, I'm not an expert on on these particular yeah. you know issues, but you know, and then obviously like an asteroid impact, um, super volcanic eruption, natural pandemic. Uh, you know, we're in the midst of kind of the anti anti -vax vaccine, you know, the, the um, anti vaccine movement, and uh, a lot of those people don't realize just how many humans have perished 
way more people died in the two years from yeah. 1918 uh, to 1920 from the Spanish flu. Way more people died than from 1914, 1918 in World War One. Yeah, yeah. So, we've got we've got measles spreading here in Canada in in Vancouver. It's it's enraging uh, it's, because people aren't aren't getting their their vaccinations. It's so irresponsible. Yeah, but but and that's a whole that'll be a whole other show. But but I mean I think like. And I don't mean to be super flippant about the horror show that would go on from any of those natural events that you described. Yeah. You know, a gamma ray burst would wipe off the the ozone protective ozone layer of the Earth from yeah. halfway across the galaxy and would, you know, and would give everybody really bad sunburns and potentially, you know, yeah. cancer. Uh, an asteroid and could... if I may add, th there would be no warning. You know, it just. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... yeah right. You had your atmosphere, and and then it it's gone. Um, or yeah. you had your ozone layer, and now it's gone. You know, or an yeah. asteroid smashing into the into the Earth, but but we know that that happens once every sixty five million years. In fact, NASA at this point has has mapped out all of the potential ten kilometer one to ten kilometer or one plus kilometer asteroids. None of them are any risk. Now it's just city mere city killers that are out there now, right? That we have yeah. to be potentially concerned about. And so right, right. all of these. All of these things, you know, a catastrophic volcanic eruption, Earth has done this in the past, you know. And so I think that these are all things that people are concerned about. Nuclear war, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, with each one of these things, they are all awful. Mm -hmm. And they would be devastating to, to humanity and to life. But, but life for sure would recover from any of those. Um, humanity, maybe, you know. But if not us, then the octopuses take over or the... Or the or the dolphins or whatever, right? Right. <laughs> so so, but the but the issue is is these these ideas of of the existential threats that are that are our fault, mm -hmm. um, that we could stumble into, which no natural event has ever been has never seen is wouldn't be possible, and yeah. that as you say would not only cause the extinction of humanity quickly but mm -hmm. essentially end the 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 gene line forever the adventure yeah the, the adventure project. yes yeah the yeah and i and i really feel that you know like like we don't know for sure that there is any other life in the universe and so we feel like it is like like right now until we discover the extraterrestrials it is our responsibility to not die yeah i think that, that's certainly one way to look at it i'm i'm my i personally am sympathetic very much with that view I, I recently wrote a paper that's that's under review um with uh, a colleague simon beard at the center for the study of existential risk at cambridge university um where we lay out for the first time like basically every all of the most powerful arguments for why human extinction would constitute a massive tragedy and certainly the the, the notion of cosmic uh uniqueness is um you know a lot of people do find that compelling uh and again like i said i mean i i do as well um so yeah it would be it, i mean there are plenty of other arguments i mean there, there's sure. i mean i was just talking about civilization as like you know an ongoing project that's something that edmund burke uh talked about in um i guess the 1800s and goes all the way back to uh somebody named uh seneca uh the younger who who wrote about it's an amazing passage from uh, early on. He was a tutor of, of the Emperor Nero, actually, where he talks about, you know, the sky 
the sky itself constitutes a topic that no single individual will be able to master in his or her life. Um, so you know, consequently, we accumulate knowledge over time and it's this massive project. So you know, from that perspective, wouldn't it be uh, an extraordinary shame if we were the generation that screwed everything up and all of yeah. the moral progress that we've made since the 1950s, all of the science, scientific knowledge we've acquired since Copernicus, you know, all of that ended up being um, just casually tossed into the, yeah. the, the, you know, the fireplace, um, committed to the fire, as it were. Um, so yeah, and, and indeed, the risks that are anthropogenic in nature are by far the most significant. So for example, uh, a philosopher uh, at Oxford, uh, who's also part of, affiliated with the Future of Humanity Institute named uh, Toby Ord, uh, he said before, his kind of estimate is there's maybe a one in 300 chance per century of humanity dying out as a, as a result of a natural uh, catastrophe. And yet he puts the likelihood of us surviving uh, the current century at about one in six. And that more or less kind of agrees with what a lot of other people who seriously look at these issues, Nick Bostrom has said that there's um, at least a 20% chance of human extinction this century. Lord Martin Rees at Cambridge famously uh, wrote in 2003 that he thinks there's a 50% chance of civilizational collapse um, before the end. Um, and so on and so on. I've also compiled, there's like a huge list of, you know, yep. se serious uh, intellectuals who have, uh, you know, have uh, hazarded, um, you know, made more or less uh, educated conjectures uh, about the the chances of survival. So anyways, yeah, so just the, the contrast between the probability of uh, natural extinction versus anthropogenic extinction immediately implies that the bulk of the risk comes from you know nuclear technology as well as this as you were mentioning before this expo exponentially developing emerging technology associated with biotechnology synthetic biology nanotechnology ai drones you know and so on and so on yeah uh, i had an argument not an argument really a conversation at a science conference um with uh tyler cowan i think it was he's a sure. he's an economist and we were talking about we were going down this rabbit hole of drone warfare against human drone assassination against human beings and how we'll get to this point in the future where everybody has ai controlled drones that they can control and they can send off to pretty much just assassinate anyone anytime they want and so that yeah. we would all then need to have our own personal drone cloud that would be flying around us to protect ourselves from the like like once you like i said you know like what if everyone has a drone and anyone's drone could do whatever they want with it you know like you can you can go to these really crazy rabbit holes um I'm less concerned necessarily specifically about the drones, um, yeah. although maybe I should be. Uh, like I said, Tyler and I freak each other out. But um, <laughs> I, I'm interested in. I think there's two that I think you know I'd love to talk about. One is is the AI side and sort of the rise mm -hmm. of AI, and then the other one is just just you know synthetic biology, but also just like just biotechnology in in general, and mm -hmm. you know, would you say that those are sort of the two biggies that we can really predict right now as being gigantic threats that we're stumbling forward into? Um, yes. Uh, so I, I think you would, had intimated this earlier, um, you know, if there was a all-out nuclear exchange, um, uh, it probably is the case that, that humanity would survive in some form, probably in Southern Australia or uh, New Zealand, where a lot of billionaires are building their, their bunkers. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, but even that, you know, there was a study out not that long ago that found 100 Hiroshima-sized bombs uh, detonated in the subtropics would be enough for like maybe a decade-long nuclear winter, most, but mostly in the northern hemisphere. Um, so it, interestingly, at least for me, that means, you know, we really didn't have a, a large enough arsenals until about 1953 to actually have destroyed the world. Um, so that was kind of the moment in right. human history. That was a watershed Finally. moment. Around 1951, right. 52. Um, so, uh, but in contrast, um, I think AI poses probably something more, more along the lines of an all or nothing threat. Right. Um, uh, in, in contrast to that, I think, uh, you know, an engineered pandemic could be profoundly, unprecedentedly uh, catastrophic, but it probably wouldn't kill everybody. I mean, there are people in a village called, I think, Las Estrellas um, uh, in Antarctica, you know, I don't know, a couple, maybe a hundred people there, um, you know, the uncontacted tribes in right. the Amazon and, you know, hermits up in Siberia and whatnot. So these individuals would, you know, would have a good chance of surviving. I think something like, like the gray goo mm -hmm. scenario, that's probably another all or nothing um, uh, disaster. But yeah, a AI seems extremely worrisome. Uh, despite the the what some scholars have been calling AI denialism, that's been um, promulgated by quite prominent yeah. uh, intellectuals like Steven Pinker, and and uh, I think that like anybody who's ever used a computer and seen that it didn't do what you wanted it to do, and then you had to turn it off and turn it back on again, yeah. is comfortable with the idea that computers can sometimes do things that we don't want them to do and are out of our control. Yeah. And to think that you have control, like literally, all you have to do is just like work with a computer for any length of time and then you know all bets are off yeah these things are the worst i hate <laughs> them so much and it's just a matter of time before they rise up and and it's a you know wipe us all out yeah yeah well i so um i would say that the main issue isn't i i, I think it's maybe arguably misleading to talk about like an uprising or something of, of that sort um the, the real issue is, is uh, you know, right now we have all sorts of AI systems that are extraordinarily super intelligent, but in narrow domains. You know, calculators are amazing and, uh, you know, we now have gains uh, as a result of deep learning that can out, AI systems that can outperform humans on, you know, uh, games, chess, you know, and so on. Uh, the issue is that once we create an algorithm that is more generally intelligent than humans in all of the various, you know, the relevant cognitive domains, then how do we control that algorithm? And, you know, ultimately there's a technical aspect to this problem, which is, you know, let's say we want the AI to care about happiness. How is it that we uh, describe happiness in, you know, in, uh, you know, the programming language um, of the AI? Uh, but there's also, I think the, the most significant, you know, the real linchpin of this whole argument is is philosophical in nature. So one reason I get a little bit frustrated when uh, people say, oh, you know, I talked to my my colleague who, um, you know, is, is working on, uh, you know, AI systems, and he or she says, well, it's, I, I don't think, you know, AGI is that, that big of a concern. But it's it's ultimately, it's a philosophical issue. And I would also point out that, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, microbiologists who are tinkering with, uh, you know, pathogens who don't have a good sense of what the possible mm -hmm. the implications of 
synthetic biology, CRISPR-Cas9, gene drives, and so on, really are for the safety and security of humanity uh, or you know, the, the, the preservation of the biosphere moving forward. Um, so th there's a parallel there. Um, but so ultimately, it's just a philosophical issue. Um, you know, what, if you program the AI to uh, one is so. I, I don't, would it be helpful if I went through some of the issues? Well, I, that, I mean, I, like, okay. I, I don't like. I, I am gonna assume that most yeah. of my audience is fairly comfortable with things like you know the the control problem. You know, okay, trying okay. to you know you know how do you tell the AI what to do and what not to do, and sure. I and I think that. Like for me, I think that you don't really need to even think about all of that because it's all back to that exponential growth curve, both on the <clears throat> biological side and on the artificial intelligence side. Both of them are essentially the costs of producing more powerful AI solutions and more and more sophisticated biological solutions. The t the the what you need to be able to do to be able to pull this off gets mm -hmm. cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So, you know, we may start at a time uh, where you need the resources of an entire country to be able to create an artificial general intelligence, then you need a research institution, and then you need a garage, and then you need a, ki a script kitty who is, you know, who's downloaded the, the AGI crack set from the internet and is releasing all kinds of artificial general intelligence into the on, into the world. Same thing yeah. with synthetic biology, right? You know, to create a super plague, you've got to be, um, you've got to be a nation, then you've got to be a research institution, then you've got to be a, some people working in a garage, and then you've got to be somebody who, who, you know, someone with a grudge yeah. and, and releases a, a bacterial plague. And, and in fact, each of these will be tied multiple times because, you know, everyone's going to be tinkering. So you, I feel like you don't really have to think too hard about the pathways that this is all going to take because every combination yeah. will be tried by anybody with any amount of technical wherewithal whatsoever as the costs come down. Yeah. As um, I believe Bostrom writes in his book, Superintelligence, there, there's a line that I like where he's like, he says something along the lines of, you know, because of the, you know, these technologies are getting more powerful, more accessible, and they're dual use. And some little idiot, as he, yeah. as he put it, is bound, you know, to, uh, to exploit, you know, to misuse and abuse the technology for some kind of, um, you know, maybe omnicidal uh, or anti-civilizational uh, purpose. Um, this is actually, there's been almost no work previously done on omnicidal agents, except, uh, I wrote two papers on it, and you know, essentially the question was, you know, imagine that uh, we all have access, you know, within fingers' reach of a doomsday button, and then the question is, who exactly would would push it? Uh, and one answer is, well, possibly anybody because yeah. we're fallible, and sometimes we make mistakes, we trip on our shoelaces, you know, we fall down the stairs, whatever. Um, there are plenty of amazing uh, and horrifying stories of pathogens accidentally being leaked mm -hmm. uh, from laboratory, you know, even highly regulated laboratories. Um, so, but, but actually the question, I mean, there are various classes of individuals who uh, would indeed have grudges or, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe even for ethical reasons, what they would consider to be ethical yeah. reasons, they would want to wipe out humanity. Or, or religious reasons or like, like, again, it does, like, you know, like when you see that there are, 
mass shootings, when you see that there are people who are um, have some kind of mental disease, people who have grudges, all kinds of things. I mean, it's almost yeah. like, again, it's like you don't even need to you don't even need to think it through. Yeah, you can yeah, just yeah. assume that yeah. that uh, you know that all the checks and uh, once the checks and balances are gone, yeah. then anybody who wants to can can kind of do whatever they want f- for all against to all humanity. Yeah, at their this, this whim. Is, yeah, 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 the, and this sort of ties into uh, Carl Sagan's uh, old uh, uh, mad, madman argument, uh, where he says, you know, sometimes I talk to people who are who dismiss concerns about the the growing uh, you know power and accessibility of technologies surely nobody out there would would destroy the world well there are madmen yeah there's plenty of people who love to destroy the world yeah i mean as as you know the nazis were were losing world war ii um you know hitler uh uh you know turns violence on his own people he thought, you know, the lesser individuals had um, were were still around, and he and Sagan argues that he, you know, if he had nuclear weapons, he might have been even yeah. more um, tempted just to, you yeah. know, to launch them in every direction. So, anyways, yeah, um, there are there, people can read about the I've, under the title of agential risk, and I do catalog a bunch of actual people who were both violent and who expressed in public or private some extremely disturbing homicidal. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, anti-civilizational, you know, and so on, ap- apocalyptic uh, views. Also, there, there was a paper recently, I'm not sure if it's published yet, it's up on archive, by a uh, Stanford uh, scientist named John Sotos. And he offers this really fascinating model where he just basically just crunches the numbers and uh, demonstrates that, you know, the probability of any one attempted attack, any, of any one individual in, in the world successfully um, uh, uh, inducing some kind of existential catastrophe doesn't need to be high for um, the for the le- the likelihood of some kind of terminal catastrophe to occur per decade or century right. to, to basically reach one. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. That yeah, so, so probabilities so, accumulate. So yeah, exactly. So then I think the next step then is to talk about sort of you know our the the. The world that I live in, this sort of, you know, the space exploration fans, the astronomy fans, you know, when people ask, why are we going to go to space? And you ask this question to Elon Musk, et cetera, going to space, colonizing Mars, colonizing the moon, these give us a backup to to whatever mayhem happens down on Earth. If you're watching from Mars, it's not your problem. And in your article in nautilus you say actually sorry uh it's still your problem so can you explain why you think that potentially space exploration isn't going to be this panacea that that we're all hoping like can you please ruin space exploration christmas right now (laughs) yeah um it's funny you use the word panacea because i often refer to it as uh i've referred to space colonization as being interpreted as an existential panacea as you know, Stephen Hawking famously said, we we had um, before he passed away, obviously, um, that we have maybe a hundred years left to leave the planet, or else uh, the other option is die. That was the, the you know, or die was the phrase he used. Um, and you know, yeah, Michael Griffin, I think, who's the former administrator of NASA, said similar things. Elon Musk, of course, has talked about this as a humanitarian uh, uh, project. Ultimately, um, I should say first of all, so uh, somebody 
else working on these ideas who was absolutely uh, fundamental in, in cr critical in inspiring me to think about the potential hazards of um, of uh, space colonization is Daniel Dubny, who's an international relations theorist at Johns Hopkins, and he has a forthcoming book called uh, Dark Skies, which I would I've read. It's not going to be out for uh, I think you know maybe another year or something, um, but it's a it's a brilliant. Uh, uh, really fine-grained, highly sophisticated uh, uh, analysis of uh, examination of this sort of predicament. I mean, essentially the idea is, uh, you know, in international relations theory, there's, uh, you know, basically Thomas Hobbes was the first guy who, uh, who he kind of founded, you know, p political philosophy, political science. Um, and he pointed out that, you know, we're in this sort of hypothetical state of nature in which um, there are various reasons to uh, uh, to aggress on our neighbors. Uh, he specifically mentioned three uh, reasons for reputation, for gain, and uh, for, I'm forgetting the third one, I feel like uh, Rick Perry right now, um, but uh, it'll come to me in just a moment. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically, so we're in this situation and ultimately we, um, you know, it's solitary, poor, nasty, brutus in short, we come together, we create this social contract that essentially um, constructs a, another entity, a referee. So we give up all sorts of freedoms for this referee to take control and it's neutral and a neutral arbiter. And as a result, we get security. And, uh, and you know, Hobbes's view was that the reason we, we're in this state of nature that's bad and you know, highly undesirable in the first place because we're all egotistical but later on, there, you know, further developments of this idea resulting in a neorealist view, uh, like Kenneth Waltz is, is an individual who was responsible, largely responsible for this, where the idea is that there are structural features to an anarchic situation. Anarchy simply meaning that there's no uh, top-down kind of, you know, apparatus or structure that can impose law and order, uh, and thereby replace anarchy with hierarchy. Uh, so when we're in this anarchic situation, um, uh, you know, there's certain mechanisms that can prevent conflict from breaking out. You might trust people. You know, if I trust you not to stab me, then, you know, we're going to, I'm going to feel secure. We're going to be okay. Um, there are, you know, policies of deterrence. There are, uh, um, um, it, obviously, the Leviathan, if you create a, you know, a governmental system. So, um, the question is, uh, when we move out into space and we create this radically multipolar um, uh, configuration, and there are maybe millions of different civilizations all over the place, uh, what should we expect? How is it that we can ensure that 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 future world is peaceful? Right. And it's kind of hard to figure out why. So on the, the one hand, you know, as we as we uh, um, migrate through the cosmos uh, will undergo evolution. Uh, there might, you know, if we're still uh, um, biological uh, creatures, then there will no doubt be, you know, new Darwinian uh, uh, pressures right. to evolve, you know, different gravitational pool, different planets, different atmospheric pressures, you know, solar luminosities and so on right. and so on. And so, but like so, the but, gist is really that when we go to space, we're going to take us to space. And, well, and yes. we're we're gonna do we're gonna do what we do, 
Yeah. Like the same things that we do here on Earth, we're going to take to space. And if people think that somehow not only will you get a chance to go to space, but also utopia yeah. is is not understanding how this tends to play out. Wherever humans go, they seem to bring their humanity with them. Yeah. So and it, I would put it just slightly differently. Um, are we frozen? Oh, no, no we're not. Okay, okay, good. Um, okay, good. Uh, um, so I would say that, you know, we moving into space, we cannot escape the structural aspects of the world today that result in insecurity. And it might be even worse than that. As we go out into space and we diversify, there are all, you know, there are all these speciation events, you know, um, uh, as a result of living in different environments, and also through, you know, using person engineering technologies to through cyborgization to create, you know, you know, um, you know, bio technological hybrids, um, uh, perhaps you know, completely uploaded, you know, completely machinic kind of entities. Um, that this diversity, this kind of radical diversity, will undercut trust, mm -hmm. which is one of the possible mechanisms for preventing conflict from breaking out. So then there's the question: Okay, well, would a cosmic leviathan work? Um, it certainly worked within nation states here. You know, it's in fact Stephen Pinker identifies the the uh, the establishment of uh, government you know, state systems as one of the major reasons why violence has declined over time. So could we do it in space? And um, I, I suppose your audience knows uh, probably much better than I do that space is big. <laughs> right. You know, and you, you, you can't have, a, a, you know, your government, you can't provide security as a state for your citizens if you're not properly coordinated. You know, if you call the police and you say someone's going to stab me and they show up two weeks later, prompt, you know, they speed up, you know, yeah. it's, with tires screeching three, you know, two weeks later, um, that's not effective. I might as well not live yeah. in, I might as well just live in, you know, state of nature. And, so I think, I think a cosmic leviathan is going to have coordination problems such that it's just not going to provide a solution. So then we, we've, we're down two possibilities and you're left with the question, well, what other options do we have for ensuring that um, there's peace? Uh, well, so the, I mean, like just with some of the existential threats that we face here on Earth, when you look at, say, the AI problem, it's not as yeah. if AI can't chase us to space. They'd be glad to chase us to space. They would thrive yeah. chasing us in space. And at any point, somebody could be working on an asteroid base somewhere in the, you know, deep in the asteroid field. They could release a swarm of self-replicating robot probes that yeah. gobble up all of the asteroid belt and then pelt asteroids at any at any of their enemies that yeah. so y all you've done is you've made an environment that is easier for yeah. one of those existential threats to happen and say maybe it'll little be, be a little tougher for someone to release a pathogen through space but you yeah. could totally just start you know putting tiny little robot factories on asteroids and just start shifting around the asteroid field into into trajectories that are that harm your enemies in the future like like with the resources of the solar system at our disposal with the with the technologies coming into our hands at various levels the exact same existential threats that we are thinking about here on earth scale beautifully up to the entire solar system and the problem remains. And I guess the point is that we need to sort it out or at some point, we have to sit down and sort this out, hopefully once and for all. Yeah. Otherwise, 
the 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 risks the stakes just get higher and higher and higher yeah also i mean it's worth pointing out that there are all sorts of potential um uh, super advanced weapons yeah that could just <laughs> it could really exacerbate the predicament i mean you mentioned um you know weaponized asteroids i like the term planetoid bomb uh for for those um and, yeah you know but they're like you know your black um, hole factory on your you know your super large space hadron collider yeah yeah um <laughs> yeah um definitely you know kinetic you know the rods from god yeah i don't know if you've heard of those sure. um, yeah. uh you know direct energy directed energy weapons that you know you know a laser or something that could potentially um destroy i mean obviously lasers moving at you know the speed of light 168 186 you know 262 yeah. or whatever it is uh, miles per second and um uh, you know destroy targets uh, there's also you know as you get more and more of these beings out there there's a, an increasingly formidable forensic task of figuring out you know if you are attacked in a non-existential manner who did it who did it yeah <laughs> you know, there's all yeah. of these different and and maybe they you know they have minds you know cognitive architectures that are completely different they had this also gets back to the trust issue they have maybe uh, emotional ranges normative worldviews just to put it you know in very broad terms that um are uh, alien you know to, yeah. to use the, the most apt term um so it's it does seem like and also you know some people have you know milan Cirkovic has responded to to some of these ideas by saying well you know i'm a lot of these arguments are based on like you know extrapolating human issues you know into space but really what we should be doing is thinking about post-human you know post-biological beings and how they might behave and i find that to be uh extremely uncogent because the crux of the argument has to do once again with structural issues with game theory you know and game theory concerns what rational agents sh should do so it's not you know, insofar, I mean, as far as we could tell right now, insofar as it's the case that these post-biological beings are, you know, out in space and are rational, then they have a reason to engage in, you know, the, the spiral of militarization to, to ensure, to secure themselves, um, you know, to attack first in the, the you know, Hobbesian uh, uh, predicament. Um, to attack first, to eliminate the possibility, even if there's a small possibility, you might want to just you know, kill your neighbor in this. So mm -hmm. even for agents who are completely um, uh, benevolent, maybe altruistic, you know, if they are not 100% sure that the neighbor isn't going to destroy them at some point, and there's no cosmic Leviathan to top down in top down fashion, impose law and order, then you kind of have a reason. And it's insofar as your neighbor, let's say they're altruistic are thinking the same thing they're going to start to build up their offensive weapons that's going to make you yeah. you know and this is called, this is the security dilemma of of right. uh yeah and you so know, international you know, relations and even if you go uh galaxy wide right am i sending my fleet of self-replicating von neumann probes to your yeah. home system to turn your entire home system into uh planet killing planetoids right so yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so so bring, so bring it all home for everybody I, you know i, I want to give people a chance to ask you some questions because i've been completely hogging the conversation and i apologize but come on um but uh what can we do um well <laughs> what can um, we do about this come on man we've got to figure to sort this out what's the what's the plan how do we prevent a 
you know, an, an ongoing accelerating existential threat that yeah. is on multiple pathways. Each yeah. one is on uh, a um, exponential growth. Yeah. Um, well, one of the more creative ideas, um, and this is, comes from uh, another Oxford um, uh, scholar named Anders Sandberg, who's a truly extraordinary you know, polymathic guy. Um, and I feel comfortable saying this because he's mentioned this in, in public a few times, because initially there's kind of information hazard issues surrounding it. But there, there's, it could be possible, perhaps, to create some kind of informational seed that encodes your civilization. And then to induce uh, um, a vacuum bubble. That's that your plan. The, That's your plan. Universe. So, this, so hold on. Just to be clear, this is this is the most the most creative and interesting and extreme yeah. idea. Just to be sure. Um, but okay. So, so sort of returning to to um, the more mundane, as it were. Um, yeah. Write a, think, write a note. Write a message in a bottle. Put it into a different universe, and then hope that at some point someone reads yeah. it. No, Mickey Kaku has also talked about the possibility of, uh, you know, it, it, um, as a result. We'll of, set that uh, aside and call it Plan B. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, give Kaku's me the, give me the Plan the A, the one where we where we figure out a way to permanently prevent ideally existential threats from wiping out humanity and potentially all life in the universe. Yeah. Um, so I think. Um, so let me just say, first of all, like the field of existential risk study is nascent mm -hmm. and it's kind of, it's burgeoning right now. There are a lot of, you know, young minds who are attracted to it. But like I said before, you know, the very notion of human extinction, like wasn't seriously entertained until quite recently. Um, uh, so my point is like, there hasn't been all that much, much research so far done on these issues. Some ideas are like, well, maybe, we could, um, this is exactly in line with what we were talking about before, we could establish some kind of singleton or global governing system, you know, that could impose, uh, uh, that, that could ensure security for all the member individuals, citizens of the globe, as well as the, you know, nation states and so on. Um, that's a possibility. I mean, some people have talked about surveillance, um, other ideas that are, again, kind of a bit, uh, a little bit out there, but people are feeling around in the dark mm -hmm. and sort of desperately grasping for uh, good ideas is like moral bioenhancement is maybe there are ways that we can use technology or some kind of, um, you know, pharmaceutical to enhance our, our moral, moral dispositions of altruism, uh, which can be, you know, uh, decomposed into a sympathetic concern and empathy, as well as our sense of justice. And, uh, in fact, the, the two scholars who, who are also at Oxford, who um, are the, the most uh, the most energetic exponents of this view, uh, they kind of shrug when it comes to the issue of of lone agents or small terrorist groups or something like that. And they say, "Well, I don't know. Maybe we need literally. I mean, they're they're progressives, to be clear, uh, on the political spectrum. But they say, I don't know. Maybe society needs to become a little less liberal, and we need more surveillance." This is not ideal. Yeah, Do you no, have no. A better idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, so my, my best idea, like you know, yeah. having thought through all of the possibilities, my best idea is you essentially come up with an AGI with, with an artificial general intelligence. Yeah. And you, and that doesn't want to turn us all into paper clips. Yeah. And instead wants to to protect us from 
wiping ourselves out. And 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 you and it has to be the first one. Yeah. And then it has to then be the best one, right? And that's yeah. and that I feel like that because we can't make the decision. No human, you know, humans can't make the decisions fast enough. Humans can't notice somebody, and so it does unfortunately like I I and that and that if if you don't get that one AI cranked up and protecting yeah. us, then uh Oh man, there's this video game called Destiny. I don't know if you've ever played video games in no. Destiny, and I forget Resputin, I think. Anyway, there's an AI that that one of the civilizations creates, and it's called Resputin, and it sort of out hacks every other AI, and they are yeah. protected, uh-huh. and that's it. And so you've just got to make an AI that can out hack all the other AIs, yeah, and it will protect you, and then hopefully it also won't want to turn you into paper clips. Like that's all so I've I- got. I wrote a, a book chapter on this exact issue. It's, it's in the, um, a book called Artificial Intelligence, Safety and Security, where I talk about a, po- a post-singularity social contract, where essentially we give up our right, our freedom to govern over to some kind of uh, you know, friendly AI that perhaps is, is designed specifically to govern. There's a nice term that's been coined uh, and is being discussed recently called algocracy, rule by algorithms. Um, nice. and and well, in the paper itself, I mean, I say like, I don't know, this is, a, it's kind of a crazy idea. And my God, the, the control problem, as I, I probably your, your viewers may concur, um, I think is it's probably one of the most formidable. Yeah. I mean, it pertains to perennial philosophical issues that we've been struggling with since the pre-Socratic philosophers. You know, so apparently yeah. we need to solve some of these axiological issues right. before the first one, because we're not going to get to you know scrap an yeah. agi asi system to start over yeah so it's it's fraught with all sorts of issues but but yes it seems like again my 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 the, the gist of my argument is here's possibly one way we create the super intelligence that governs you know the planet um do you have a better idea you know because no that's that like i, I would said, that... i would love to know what it no, is. no no no. but i mean you know and then i, and mean, th- I mean the general you by oh, the, the way, general not... yeah the people who are watching yeah, yeah. anyone's got a great just idea just go ahead and type it in you can be right at the yeah. forefront of existential risk uh research right now yeah. you know you'll get you write a paper um <laughs> if anyone's got any questions for phil that would be that would be great i know i've been completely hogging his time but it's been uh, been you know this is as you can tell this is sort of a thing that i think a lot about and so getting a chance to to chat was a, was a lot of fun um uh but yeah i think um you know you're going you you know you mentioned you're you're going to be getting a chance to do more of this work shortly what mm-hmm. are some of the branches of of this that you are going to be putting some of your your energy into what are some like ideas for papers what are some things that you're working on right now um one is uh, a paper on crimes against humanity uh, and existential risks. Um, I've sort of, I've been toying a little bit with the notion of like super crimes or super you know, crimes, you know, <laughs> super crimes. Um, uh, yeah, just because again, crimes against humanity just doesn't. And in fact, all of the the individuals that the International Criminal Court ha, um, has uh, has uh, uh, tried for crimes against humanity have been individuals in in kind of who have done truly horrific things. Please don't get me wrong, but it's all been like pretty localized. And, uh, and ultimately, it just as a matter of fact, those horrific atrocities that these individuals committed pale in co- comparison to what 
uh, a an existential catastrophe would uh, um, would entail. So that's one idea. But I right now I'm just really wrapped up in this this book project on the history of the. I, it's, it's called a history of human extinction, but really what it is is a history uh, of the idea of human extinction. Uh, when did we first, you know, entertain this idea? Uh, um, and you know, a few people kind of you, you see kind of hints of it uh, around the 1860s when the um, second law of thermodynamics was um, was first articulated by Lord Kelvin and some others. Uh, Lord Kelvin himself immediately rejects the idea that the universe if it's an isolated system is going to run down and become completely inhospitable, mostly for religious reasons. Um, Darwin himself, you know, he became quite agnostic towards the end of his life. And he, pretty much the only time, you would think that he would have considered at some point the possibility of human extinction because extinction is absolutely central to his theory of natural selection. And he also believes that humans are animals. So you would think that he would have made that connection in some point, you know, conjectured about, uh, um, you know, our, our future in that sense. Um, but the only time the only time he ever gestures at the possibility of human annihilation is when he's writing i believe it's a letter to a friend in like 1871 or something uh when he he explicitly mentions the second law of thermodynamics um, but then it's just not really hg wells maybe was one of the very first um uh even maybe even before that lord byron uh during in in 1816 which is in the you know the aftermath of the uh eruption of tambora which resulted in the the year without a winter uh wrote his poem darkness and that maybe that was the first time ever in where there's kind of some explicit uh, uh hints that humanity could completely disappear forever but then it's not until i don't know in the 1980s that people you know a little bit after world war Two, there was concern about like radioactive fallout and radiation and that affecting uh, that causing, you know, mutations and in, in genes. But um, uh, yeah, it really wasn't until the 1980s. And then again, the field was, I think, formally kind of founded in 2002 with Nick Bostrom's paper. So this is really, yeah. really recent stuff. You don't need to read that much to end up on the absolute vanguard of contemporary research. So it's really exciting. There's low hanging fruit all over the place. Um, I've mentioned you, I mean, some of the papers I've written are on topics that nobody's written about before. So that's low hanging fruit, you know, omnicidal agents, you know, what are all of the various arguments, moral and non-moral for why human extinction would be a catastrophe? You know, nobody, there's no previous paper on that. So right. I do encourage people to, to, to get excited about the topic, um, not just because it, you know, it, if we're successful, it means you get to continue living. And same with your kids and, you know, grandkids yeah, or yeah. whatever. You're welcome, universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for but life. also because it's just, it's exciting. I mean, it is, they're heady times, yep. uh, you know, for us existential risk scholars. Oh, and there's also, you know, some people in the field like to joke, it's a growth thing, you know. So there's kind of job security. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting, I mean, that, that, you know, there is actually you saying there's only one place in the entire world that has a dedicated group thinking about this. There are there, there there's really um, two research institutes: the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge and the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. There's also the the Future of Life Institute, uh, but that they they do more kind of outreach. Same with the Bolt of the Atomic Scientists. Um, perhaps another notable uh, institute is Miri in Berkeley, California, the uh, Machine Intelligence uh, Research Institute. 
uh, and they mostly f focus on AGI and view of value alignment issues. Um, yeah, otherwise, like, there's a few here and there. There's one in Stockholm that's focused on the future of humanity, but, uh, and some of the, the scholars who are really top-notch um, do publish papers on existential risk issues. But um, yeah, not that, I mean, Nick Bostrom famously, like in one of his papers, you know, said like, here are the number of publications over, you know, a certain amount of time on dung beetles, and here are the number of publications on existential risk. Um, I've similarly done, you know, you can just, you can do what I've done and just go to a Google Scholar and search existential risk uh, versus, um, you know, d different genes, you know, FOXP2 gene or um, cancer, Super Mario Brothers was one that I searched for. Way more, you know, scholarship on video games, which I think is valuable in, in a certain way for sure. But in terms of priorities, something seems kind of yeah. off there. So I would argue. <laughs> well, Phil, we've reached the end of our hour and this has been absolutely uh fascinating um there was one question that i wanted to just throw your way just the, the sure. a quick one uh when do you guess we see an artificial general intel intelligence what's your just your just pick your date um i would say first of all studies show that experts are no better <laughs> at guessing that's fine this issue than yeah. than people who have no idea so you might as well go onto the street and, and ask someone. So I would say, I mean, with that in mind, like I have no idea. I, I think there's a, there's a non-trivial chance that a kid born today will end up living in a world where she or he is joined by a cognitive system that is for the first time in human history is smarter than any human. I think it's a non-trivial chance, but um, I'm not gonna venture a percentage. So sometime let me just in the say, next let me say 100% so. chance in the next five years. I'll yeah. just throw that out there. And if I'm right, then nice. That, that was good. That was a great, that was a, that was a, that was a perfect one. And uh, don't worry, no one's going to hold you to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and if you're wrong, then, then the existential risk gets punted down the road. So I think really you win either way. You either win the bet or humanity continues on for longer than you were expecting. Yeah. So. I think five years would be, yeah too soon yeah that's not good <laughs> yeah um all right well phil it was awesome to talk to you uh you've got a couple of books that people should know did you oh i should have asked you to have them at arm's length do you have them handy i don't know oh man rookie mistake yeah always have your books um <laughs> but uh I, I put a link to the to i'll put a link to a bunch of your books so people can go and check them out and you yeah. have a website where you talk about uh, some of the work you're doing as well right yeah, risksandreligion.org. Uh, and you could also follow me on Twitter at uh, X and then Riskology. X Riskology. X, X Riskology, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I so. don't know. I think the Omni Criminal uh -huh. I think would be, you know, that'd be a, that's a great Twitter handle too. Yeah, that's a good thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Ben, it was it was a lot of fun to chat with you, and uh, you know, keep me posted as you uh, as you continue to work to save humanity. Uh, we're all counting on you. Apparently, that's it. So you and Nick Bostrom. <laughs> well, that's if that's the case, we're in trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks a lot, and thanks everyone Thank for watching. You so much. All right, take okay. care. Take care.